Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, William here. Just a heads up. After this podcast was broadcast, RNZ was alerted to some inaccuracies in this particular episode, which have now been corrected in this version of the podcast. If you want more details on what was changed and why, check out the episode page at rnz.co.nz. It's 1869, and we're sitting in a house in Blenheim. There's a woman sitting at a desk, writing. She starts with a title. An appeal to the men of New Zealand. At the heart of this appeal was a question. Why has a woman no power to vote, no right to vote, when she happens to possess all of the requisites which legally qualify a man for that right? The name of our writer is Mary Muller. She was born in London in 1820 and migrated to Aotearoa in 1849. These days, she is celebrated as New Zealand's first feminist writer. But in 1869, very few people knew Mary Muller held these views. Her husband, Stephen Muller, he disagreed with Mary's views and forbade her from writing openly about them. In her own words, she worked like a mole, underground in the dark. She convinced the editor of the local newspaper to publish her writings anonymously under the pen name Femina. To some, it might have seemed like a hopeless struggle. At the time, there wasn't a single self-governing country in the world where women could vote in national elections. But Mary Muller could see a different future. As she wrote in her pamphlet... Change is coming, but why is New Zealand only to follow? Why not take the initiative? And 24 years later, that initiative would be taken. On September 19th, 1893, Aotearoa became the first self-governing country in the world where women could vote in national elections. Ko William Ray tēnei. Ko Māni Dunlop tēnei. No mai whakarongo mai ki te Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangi Wai. We are marching to Parliament, and no more land to be sold. So let's start in the country which brought this whole idea of democratic elections to our shores. The United Kingdom. But actually, calling the UK democratic in this era is a bit of a stretch. In early 19th century Britain, voting rights were heavily restricted based on class, sex and ownership of property. Basically, if you weren't a guy and you weren't really, really rich, no votes for you. In Scotland, it was estimated just 4,000 out of 2.4 million people could vote in 1831. That's less than 0.2% of the population. 
So, to deal with this lack of representation, Britain passed the so-called Great Reform Act of 1832. Great might have been a bit of an overstatement. It's estimated only one out of every seven British men could vote under that law. So, a second Great Reform Act was passed in 1867. And still, not that great, only about two in five men could vote. Compared to what was happening in Britain, colonial New Zealand actually had radically inclusive voting rights. About three quarters of European men were eligible to vote in our first parliamentary election in 1853. And by the standards of the time, that was a lot. Technically, Māori men had the same voting rights as Pākehā, but in practice, the vast majority were excluded. One of the rules was that you needed to own or rent property to be able to vote, but most Māori men weren't counted as landowners because they owned their land communally rather than individually. By the end of the 1870s, those property restrictions were dropped, so virtually all men could vote. In 1867, the government had also established four Māori seats, which ensured some level of Māori representation. Although, on a per capita basis, there should have been about 15 Māori MPs rather than four. These expansions in voting rights in Britain, New Zealand and other parts of the Western world were part of an international movement known as liberalism. Liberalism was a big deal in the late 18th and early 19th century, partly because of the French Revolution and its declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen. Right at the top of the page, this declaration said... Men are born and remain free and equal in rights. More than a few women read that declaration and thought, you know, maybe it's not just men who are born free and equal in rights. Equal rights sound awesome. We'd love to get some of that too. And a lot of Liberal men were like, yeah, look, we'll definitely get around to that. But let's just focus on some other stuff first. And they did get around to it about a hundred years later. (laughs) Okay, so that's the European context. What about the Māori context? Well, in Māori society, leadership is substantially based on whakapapa, or ancestry. But unlike in Europe, women commonly held substantial political power. Female rangatira of high birth often became leaders of their hapū. There are oral and written histories of some male rangatira refusing to sign the Treaty of Waitangi because British officials wouldn't accept the signatures of some female leaders. But at least 12 wahine Māori did sign the treaty on behalf of their people, and there may have been more. Yeah, traditionally Māori names weren't gendered, so some of the signatures assumed to be from men could actually be from women. Māori law expert Ani Makaere explains it like this in her paper, Māori Women Caught in the Contradictions of a Colonised Reality. Women and men featured in all aspects of life and fulfilled all manner of roles. It is clear from histories that Māori women occupied very important leadership positions in traditional society, positions of military, spiritual and political significance. Of course, you could say the same for some high-ranked European women. Queen Victoria, for example. But for most European women, their rights were severely limited. In most cases, when women got married, all their property was transferred to the ownership of their husbands. Custody of children defaulted to the father, and divorce was extremely difficult. For Māori, things were different. As Ani Makaere wrote, 
Marriage did not entail a transferal of property from her father to her spouse. In cases where misconduct was shown, divorce was relatively simple so long as the correct procedures were followed. Divorce carried no stigma, and any issues as to custody and ongoing support of children were sorted out within the wider whānau context. Some Pākehā women may have been inspired by the relative equality between genders in Māori society, as Professor Barbara Brooks wrote in her book A History of New Zealand Women. Pākehā women could see Māori women participating in warfare, acting as eloquent advocates in court, and exercising unquestioned rights with regard to property. All this goes to show the fight for women's rights in the 19th century looked different for Māori and Pākehā. Pākehā women were fighting to gain rights they never had before, while wahine Māori were often fighting to regain rights they were losing through colonisation. Māori women were also living in societies with relatively even numbers of men and women, whereas Pākehā women were vastly outnumbered by men. By 1871, it's estimated Aotearoa had twice as many European men than women between the ages of 21 and 65. A lot of these men were young, single and pretty rowdy, which upset a lot of the conservative land-owning men who dominated the political establishment. And history professor Katie Pickles argues this was a major factor in the battle for women's rights. As she wrote... The relative scarcity of women put a premium on women as wives, mothers and moral guardians. The men who supported women's suffrage believed that women's votes would have an orderly, conservative effect on society. In the colonial setting, women's part as maternal, civilising agents was especially needed. Women's value in New Zealand was on a high. And that high kept rolling through the 1870s. In 1875, female ratepayers gained the right to vote in municipal elections, and in 1878, different versions of a bill allowing female ratepayers to vote for Parliament very nearly became law, but fell at the final hurdle. And voting wasn't the only battle for women's rights in the late 19th century. Some people wanted equality in divorce laws. Some wanted married women to have more rights to property and to their children. Some wanted an increase in the age of consent, which was just 12 years old at the time. And from about 1885 onward, the movement for women's voting rights became increasingly linked to another political movement. Prohibition. The struggle to ban alcohol. Traditionally, Māori never made alcohol. That was brought to Aotearoa by Europeans. And as social historian Dr Jock Phillips wrote, Europeans were big drinkers. In British and Northern European cultures, alcohol, especially beer, was regarded as an essential food which helped make blood and give energy. Milk could carry disease, water was often contaminated, and alternative drinks such as cordials, tea and coffee had not yet established themselves. Alcohol seemed a daily necessity. Then, as now, alcohol contributed significantly to domestic violence and sexual assault. It wasn't uncommon for husbands to drink away their weekly wages, and in an era where married women were usually unable to find well-paid work, that could leave their families in dire straits. 
Given all the problems drinking caused for women, it's probably not surprising the most prominent anti-alcohol group was led by women. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU for short. Temperance, by the way, it's just an old-timey word for no drinking. The WCTU was an international movement. It was founded in the United States in 1874, and its mission was summed up in a single policy, do everything. And they really meant everything. By the 1880s, representatives of the WCTU were travelling all over the world to build support for the movement. In 1885, one of these women, Mary Levitt, came to Aotearoa. She made speeches and delivered lectures all over the country and encouraged Kiwi women to set up their own chapter of the WCTU. But she wasn't just there to talk about booze. Mary Levitt argued forcefully for women's equality. According to one newspaper report of a meeting at St Paul's Church in Christchurch... Mary Levitt considered that woman as an integral part of humanity was entitled to freedom under the law of God. It was said that women could not fulfil certain duties, that they could not, for instance, be judges. But she contended that though all women were not fit to be judges, neither were all men. The latter fact didn't prevent men from being allowed to study the law, neither should the former fact prevent women. But the WCTU wasn't just a narrow, anti-alcohol, pro-women's rights movement, as historian Dr Raywin Dalziel wrote in her essay on the WCTU. Following the do-everything policy, the WCTU worked for social reform on a board front. Its members visited prisons, set up kindergartens and ran clubs for young mothers. The WCTU provided evening classes in cooking, sewing, carpentry and Bible instruction, and a club for boys. And even though Mary Levitt advocated some radical ideas, the WCTU generally wasn't seen as a radical organisation. After all, it was led by devoutly Christian middle and upper class women. It wasn't some coven of anarchist communist agitators. So how could any upstanding Kiwi bloke object if his daughter wanted to sign a pledge not to drink alcohol and help out at a Bible class? As a history professor, Ian Tyrrell wrote in a paper about the WCTU. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was a bridge between home and church on the one hand and social and political action on the other. But of course, the Temperance Union wasn't some perfect organisation which never did anything wrong. As Dr Tyrrell says... Historians have generally portrayed the WCTU in Australia as a group of religious bigots and fanatical wowsers. Wowser, by the way, is a dismissive term for someone who preaches against the dangers of alcohol. And while New Zealand historians tend to have more positive views of the WCTU than their Aussie counterparts, there are clearly aspects which were problematic. With the benefit of hindsight, it's clear the Temperance Union's idea that outlawing alcohol would lead to some kind of utopia was pure fantasy. Yeah, prohibition in the United States led to a huge growth in organised crime. And illegal beer houses in Aotearoa were also hotbeds for criminal activity as late as the 1960s and 70s. Māori women who joined the Temperance Union had to take a pledge that they would never receive mokokaiwai, reflecting a prejudice against Māori culture from many Europeans at the time. But many wahine Māori still set up local union chapters in their communities. Why? Well... Alcohol contributed to land alienation. Grog sellers targeted Māori attending the native land court to trap them in debt and force them to sell land. 
So while the WCTU had some skeletons in its closet, many still saw it as a positive force, and it played a central role in winning both Māori and Pākehā women the right to vote in Aotearoa. The woman who led the battle for voting rights within the Temperance Union was, of course, Kate Shepherd. Shepherd was born in Liverpool and migrated to Christchurch in 1868 when she was 21 years old. She was a well-educated woman from a middle-class background and active in her local church. In short, she was exactly the kind of person who'd be drawn to the WCTU. One of Kate Shepherd's first priorities was a petition to outlaw barmaids and ban the sale of alcohol to children. Oh, did we forget to say, there was no legal drinking age in New Zealand until the Liquor Licensing Act was passed in 1881, and even after that law was passed, it was legal for children of any age to drink, so long as they weren't drinking at a bar. When Parliament took no action on this WCTU petition, Shepard realised that male politicians wouldn't give a hoot about women's concerns unless they needed those women's votes. By 1887, Shepard had risen to become the WCTU's National Superintendent of Franchise and Legislation in New Zealand. And from that point on, she focused virtually all her efforts on women's suffrage. Suffrage, by the way, it just means the right to vote. Shepard was exactly the right woman for the job. A skilled organiser, talented public speaker and master of propaganda. Shepard didn't write long essays on political theory or philosophy. Instead, she wrote short, punchy pamphlets, like her famous 10 reasons why the women of New Zealand should vote. The number two reason was... Because it has not yet been proved that the intelligence of women is only equal to that of children, nor that their social status is on a par with that of lunatics or convicts. Shots fired Kate. But the story of women's suffrage isn't a one-woman crusade. Working alongside Shepherd and the WCTU were the women's franchise leagues. The leagues were all about the vote, not alcohol or religion or anything else. And according to historian Jane Tolleton, they held the biggest rallies and collected most of the signatures for the key 1893 petition to Parliament. It was led by women such as Amy Daldy, Marianne Hatton and others who probably don't get the credit they deserve for organising and motivating women to speak out. Historian Helen Simpson wrote in 1940 that the leagues were the effective factor in the suffrage campaign. But many groups helped push the cause, including the Tayloresses Union and some influential Māori women, like Merite Taimangakahia and Akenehe Tōmuana. More on those two in a minute. And of course, in a system dominated by male politicians, women couldn't have won this fight without support from men. Now, there were plenty of guys who opposed women voting. One letter published in the Littleton Times complained that if women got the vote... Instead of tempering society with grace and softness, women would embitter it with the asperities of debate. Instead of being man's comforter and better angel, she would be his intellectual antagonist. But a lot of men were actually kind of keen for a bit of intellectual antagonism from women, including some of New Zealand's most prominent politicians. As former Premier Julius Vogel said in Parliament, What right has man to demand of a woman the sacrifice of what may be called her higher intellectual qualities in order that she may be a greater pleasure to him? One of the strongest supporters of suffrage was the Conservative former Premier Sir John Hall. Sir John is a guy with, 
shall we say, a mixed legacy. That's very nice of you. Yeah, he supported the Parihaka rate when he was Premier and stood for the rights of rich landowners in Canterbury at the expense of poorer colonial farmers. But his reputation as a Conservative was actually a big help in convincing other Conservatives to support women's suffrage, as Sir John put it himself. The fact that the proposal is made by an old man who is not an inexperienced politician gives some assurance that it is not a rash or dangerous proposal. Of course that support frustrated some other Conservatives, like George Stead, the editor of the Press newspaper, who told Sir John... You are making a fatal mistake in advocating the female franchise. It will double the majority against us. I have been amongst the poor in Christchurch quite lately, and it's among women that one hears the most democratic and revolutionary theories. Men from the left wing of the Liberal Party completely agreed with that assessment and threw their weight behind the campaign for women's votes. As Liberal Party MP William Earnshaw said, The greatest thing the working man can do is to bring their wives and sisters to fight the battle against organised capital. So why would Conservatives like Sir John Hall support women's voting rights if their political enemies thought it would swing the elections in the Liberals' favour? Well, most of the people pushing for women's right to vote, including many so-called Conservatives, were inspired by the liberal writings of British philosopher and MP John Stuart Mill. But they were also influenced by their most unliberal views of Pākehā women. History professor Patricia Grimshaw put it like this in her paper, Politicians and Suffragettes. For Conservative politicians... Woman was undoubtedly a conservative element in the community. Their belief in the direction the women's vote would take was conditioned by their view of women as largely domesticated, home-loving, country-wise, and these, they felt sure, would swell the conservative ranks. So both the left-wing Liberals and the Conservatives were convinced that if women could vote, they would vote in their favour. Spoiler alert, though, both sides were wrong. The first election in which women voted did swing in favour of the Liberals, but women's votes weren't decisive. It turned out women weren't all radical progressives or die-hard conservatives. Their views on politics turned out to be just as diverse as New Zealand men. Shocking. Oh, my God. just guessed. (laughs) Okay, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. A big problem faced by the suffragists was the argument that they only represented a radical fringe. As one letter to the Littleton Times asked, Have the women in New Zealand asked for the franchise? Does one woman in 20 know anything about the matter? But the suffragists knew how to answer that question. They organised a petition so New Zealand women could speak for themselves. The first was circulated in 1891 and got about 9,000 signatures. The following year, a second petition got more than 20,000 signatures. And in 1893, the WCTU Franchise Leagues and All presented their third and final petition. It turned out quite a bit more than 1 in 20 women wanted suffrage. The 1893 petition was signed by nearly 32,000 women, almost a quarter of all Pākehā women in the country. And it wasn't like today, where you can sign a petition online. Many of these signatories travelled long distances from remote rural areas to have their say, and the petitions themselves were sent all over the country. And this is a key point. 
the battle for women's suffrage wasn't just fought by a small group of activists like Kate Shepard. It was a mass movement which involved direct action from a huge chunk of New Zealand's population. The sheets of the 1893 petition were gathered in a reel of paper 270 metres long, which Sir John Hall dramatically rolled down the aisle of Parliament. But the weird thing is, none of this should have been necessary. It was clear women's suffrage was already supported by a majority of members of the House. And several times in the late 1880s and early 1890s, it looked like suffrage was going to be passed, only for it to fail at the last second. The problem was a relatively small number of anti-suffragists who carried out a bewildering campaign of backroom deals and dirty tricks to prevent the law being changed. Many of these anti-suffragists were linked to the liquor industry, which was terrified that if women got the vote, they'd force politicians to ban or severely restrict the sale of alcohol. So at the same time the pro-suffrage petition was being sent around Aotearoa, these guys circulated their own anti-suffrage petition. But it later turned out many of the signatures on this petition were fake or obtained through fraud. Some people were bribed with free drinks to sign it, and some were even told it was a petition in support of suffrage. The final bit of trickery came from Premier Richard Seddon himself. Seddon is said to have opposed suffrage, but he avoided saying so publicly because he worried that if women knew he opposed them voting, and they did end up winning the vote, they'd punish him at the next election. Instead, Seddon appears to have worked behind the scenes to sabotage the electoral bill, ordering one pro-suffrage politician to change his vote so it would fall at the final hurdle. But then, at the last second two Conservative MPs changed their votes to support the bill. Without those two guys, Edward Stevens and William Reynolds, suffrage would have failed yet again. Finally, on September 19th, 1893, the Electoral Act was signed into law. Aotearoa became the first self-governing country in the world where women could vote in national elections. And you can even go a bit further. Every country to this day has some limits on who can vote. But by usual definitions, we can say something pretty damn cool. In 1893, Aotearoa became the first self-governing country in the world with universal suffrage. And get this, Richard Seddon announced the news to Kate Shepard in a telegram which said... I trust now that all doubts as to the sincerity of this government in this very important matter has now been effectively removed. Yeah, after all his behind-the-scenes meddling to block women's suffrage, Seddon turns around and pretends he's was for it all along. No wonder his nickname was King Dick. <laughs> but Kate Shepard and her allies were probably too busy celebrating to care. One WCTU member sent this telegram to Kate Shepard from Dunedin. Splendid meeting last night in City Hall, crammed mostly with women. Enthusiasm unbounded. Thousands of handkerchiefs waving for victory. And our old mate George Stead was less enthusiastic, saying... We have now got the female franchise as surely as we had the measles. It has come to stay, and we must make the best of it.
At the same time Pākehā women were fighting for a voice inside the Pākehā parliament, wahine Māori were fighting for representation inside the Kotahitanga parliament. As we mentioned in our episode on the Native Land Court, Te Kotahitanga was set up in an attempt to counterbalance the Pākehā-dominated colonial parliament and especially to put to an end the alienation of Māori land. Te Kotahitanga was established in 1892, and just like the Pākehā parliament, it was a bit of a sausage fest. Only men could vote or stand for a seat. As Kaupapa Māori researcher Professor Leone Pihama wrote in her essay on Māori women's suffrage. Although Māori women attended Te Kotahitanga in equal numbers to Māori men, the impact of colonial gender beliefs and practices were already embedded, with Māori women at the time being denied the right to vote or stand as members. But unlike the National Parliament, women did have the right to speak at the Kotahitanga Assembly. And on May 18, 1893, Meri of Te Rarawa delivered a speech challenging the rules on voting. She pointed out that many Māori women were landowners and knowledgeable in the management of their land. And she pointed out that when Māori men had travelled to England to lobby Queen Victoria for an end to land sales, they'd just been ignored. As she said... Perhaps the Queen may listen to the petitions if they are presented by her Māori sisters, since she is a woman as well. But later that day, another female speaker addressed Te Kotahitanga, Akinehi Tomwana of Ngāti Rangi Ita, Ngāti Papa Tua Maro, Ngāti Ngare Ngare and Ngai Tūrahi. Akinehi supported Meri's proposal, but thought a debate over the role of women in Kotahitanga should wait until the movement won official recognition from Pākehā politicians. Of course, that recognition was never received, but Meri Titai Mangakahia and Akinehi Tomwana fought on. In 1895, Tomwana said this. For many years, the men, the chiefs, the members of parliament and the kingitanga have been searching for answers to our issues regarding land and the betterment of our people. They even went to England. All of this was done without us, the women, and no benefit has come back to our people. We women have not yet tried. Wahine Māori won the right to vote in Kotahitanga in 1897. They also gained the right to stand for election. And it was another 22 years before women won that same right in the national parliament. Part of the problem in Wellington was that those conservative politicians who'd supported women's voting rights wouldn't support a law change so women could become MPs. And this is because many of those conservatives were annoyed that female voters hadn't rewarded them at the ballot box. As one conservative called Alfred Saunders wrote in a letter to Sir John Hall, The women have greatly disappointed us in the demand we thought they would make for pure and safe governments. Without the support of Conservatives like Sir John, efforts to get women the right to stand for Parliament repeatedly failed. They didn't win that struggle until 1919. That's 26 years after women won the right to vote. The first female MP, Elizabeth McCombs, wasn't elected until 1933, another 14 years after that. And it took another 16 years before Iriaka Ratana became New Zealand's first female Māori MP in 1949. It's only been in the past decade that Parliament has approached equal numbers of male and female MPs. Yeah, after the 2020 election, 48% of our MPs were women, an all-time record. Also, we've now had three female Prime Ministers. And while the slow progress must have frustrated Kate Shepherd, 
she wasn't discouraged. On the 21st anniversary of women's suffrage, she wrote, The mere doing of such an act of justice as enfranchising women was the outcome of a larger vision of rights and duties, a growing enlightenment, a broader conception of humanity as it now is and as it may become. The enfranchisement of women was in itself an expression of the growing sense of justice and humanitarianism in New Zealand. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series or Black Sheep or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.